Good afternoon, Acadiana. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show on News Talk 96.5 KPEL. Glad to be with y'all today. The most pressing item of news uh, locally or within the state, uh, it's been announced that the uh, special committee in the Louisiana House that will be looking into the death of Ronald Green at the hands of Louisiana State Police, uh, they will have their first hearing next Tuesday at 1.30 p.m. So hopefully we'll have some news coming out of that to be able to, to follow these hearings uh, on the show throughout, uh, throughout the course of this committee's investigation into things. Uh, according to uh, Republican Speaker Pro Tem Tanner McGee, uh, it will be largely organizational, that first meeting to set the direction of the hearings and see who will be called as witnesses to shed light on continuing questions about a police cover-up. Uh, all this via Greg Hilburn. Uh, this is on the advertiser's website, part of uh, the USA Today network. Uh, first on the list of potential witnesses is former state police superintendent Kevin Reeves, who retired in 2021 amid the escalating controversy surrounding the Green case. McGee said the committee will invite Reeves to testify, though Reeves turned down a request to appear before a similar committee in the Senate. Uh McGee said it's to be determined whether Edwards will be asked to testify. Now, this committee came about as a response, not of the not in in not to the original scandal, but the fact that the Associated Press, through its uh, through its freedom of information requests, discovered that there was a text from the head of state police at the time to Governor John Bell Edwards about the. Green dying in while in police custody, and that text contradicted the eventual reports from Louisiana State Police that uh, Green died as a result of a crash from a high-speed chase, uh, and uh, Edwards went along with what Louisiana State Police was saying. This obviously does not look good for Edwards, as we were talking about weeks ago when this story first cropped up. Uh, it's it's a very bad look for Edwards. What did he know? And uh, you know, did he lie about it? Did he help cover up or anything? This committee is not currently looking at whether or not Edwards committed an impeachable crime. Uh, there, the the Republicans in the House did talk about impeachment, did bring that up as a, kind of vaguely as a possibility, but this is solely to investigate just what in God's name happened. Now, if you don't remember this story, Ronald Green was a black man who uh, was fleeing police, a high-speed chase through three parishes, Ultimately, there was a crash. He was taken into custody. He was beaten very badly at the scene to the point where he became unresponsive. EMTs came out, and uh, he was rushed to a hospital where he was declared dead. And uh, all sorts of reporting that has come out since then has just revealed how insanely brutal this was and the level of cover-up there. So starting on Tuesday at 1.30 p.m., uh, this committee will begin its series of meetings. This first one, again, an organizational meeting. Uh, state police leadership said the agency will fully cooperate with the House committee and all other ongoing investigations. The agency, in a statement, said over the last 16 months, our agency has worked tirelessly to regain the trust of our citizens, our law enforcement partners, our political leaders, and the men and women of our agency. Uh, this has been a, a very, very... Uh, intense saga to watch unfold. This committee, by the way, is a split uh, between Republican and, re and, and Democrat. Uh, the chairman of this committee is Tanner McGee. 
You also have Republicans, uh, Tony Bacala, uh, Jason Hughes. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Republicans, uh, Tony Bacala, uh, Richard Nelson, Debbie Villio, and Democrats, several uh, from the Baton Rouge and New Orleans area, uh, Jason Hughes, Edmund Jordan, Mandy Landry, Denise Marcel, and... Uh, they will be looking into this as a bipartisan committee. So we will be paying attention to that as that unfolds. Now, in the national and international affairs, the war uh, uh, between Russia and Ukraine is entering its, its second week. And Russia is intensifying its efforts. Now, there are still reports that the Russian military is struggling more than you might expect, but aging equipment, uh, a, a, an army that does not seem as willing to fight as Putin would want them to be, all of that seems to be playing a part in this. You also have the fact that there was, uh, if you, you might have heard the story, there was a Chechen assassination squad that was sent out after President Zelensky of Ukraine and that assassination attempt was foiled. All the members of that assassination squad uh, were killed instead. And the speculation right now is that it is Russian uh, military, Russian intelligence, uh, law enforcement, that tipped the Ukrainians off. There is apparently some discontent in Russia over uh, over Putin's you know, going to war and his handling of it thus far. You also see guys like Marco Rubio. Uh, you also uh, Con- uh, Condoleezza Rice in in some public interviews. There's been based on non classified intelligence that, that Rubio in particular has access to that he's been sharing on social media. There's some concern in Russia that Putin may be kind of losing it mentally, and and this does kind of appear to be the case in some of the uh, in in some of what we're seeing. Putin is increasingly becoming far more emotional in his public addresses. Uh, the way he talks uh, in his speeches, the way he talks to subordinates. You know, this is a guy who has been very stoic in his uh, public addresses and in, in his speech. And instead, he has been very, very emotional in the way that he's addressed things. And his propaganda efforts are way off. Ukraine is absolutely, uh, they're, they're just, they're, they're really, it's a masterclass in government propaganda on social media, if you want to be honest. The Ukrainians are winning public support from virtually every corner of the world. You even now have China, as I mentioned the past couple of days, China is questioning its relationship with Russia. And that is actually a good sign for Americans. The United States and its allies are one of three major powers on the geopolitical scene. You have the United States, Russia, and China. I know I've gone over this before, but it it bears repeating because this is a significant aspect of the story. When you have three powers, they are essentially keeping themselves, they're keeping each other in check, in balance. And what you've had in the last, you know, 10 years or more are China and Russia kind of 
not working against each other, but but not, you know, not being allies, but not working against each other. They uh, they both agree that a stronger United States means a weaker Russia and China. So they have uh, often come together in agreement on certain geopolitical issues. You know, China and Russia both have veto power on the United Nations Security Council. So if either one of them vetoes a proposal before the Security Council, the proposal's shot dead no matter what. The United States, Russia, and China have those veto powers. Well, if Russia has alienated China with its aggressive act, because again, China was really looking forward to using the positive PR that they you know, think they got from the Olympics to go after Taiwan and go after dissidents and crack down a little bit harder. Well, then Russia comes in with this big aggressive push in war and the, the, you know, the first land war in Europe since World War II, first major land war, and Russia's stolen that limelight and made, you know, aggressive ground wars and aggressive tactics like this really, really, you know, just reminded us all how unpopular they are. China's very upset about this. So China is now suggesting that Russia step back and, and pull back from Ukraine. 232-1542. When we come back, the Biden administration has been absolutely childish on the issue of energy. Let's talk about that here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5 KPL. Well, the Russian price of oil, uh, Urals, the flagship Russian uh, crude oil, has plunged to a new record of negative $22.70 a barrel in U.S. dollars. So there is really apparently no market for Russian oil right now, which is a good thing. But at the same time, it should be, uh, the, Russia should not be, a, should not be in the energy market Right now, the the the, uh, the I was about to say Obama, the Biden administration has been so hesitant to go after Russia and its energy exports. And I am convinced. And I believe you guys are probably with me on this. I'm convinced that Biden will not go after Russia's energy exports because He's worried about the cost of gas going up here and it affecting the Democrats in November. Again, I, from from start from the start, I've told you guys we're being governed by pollsters now. And the Biden administration is worried about the polls, worried about happy, um, happy voters. And the fact is, if energy prices continue to go up, it's going to hurt the Democrats more in November. So the only thing he has, le- the only choice he has right now is to not uh, not shut down Russian exports of energy into the United States. Now, Nancy Pelosi is saying we need to get out of business with Russia's oil. Even she's out there saying it, and Jen Psaki and others in the Obama administration are saying uh, no dice on that one. But you also have, and this is this is what's infuriating me the most, You have guys like Chris Matthews at MSNBC. You have other progressives, progressive activists, all saying, let's stop buying from Russia and start buying from Iran. Because why 
why not stop buying oil from the devil and start buying oil from Satan? Which is the equivalent here. You're going to trade one bad for another bad. On on a bad day, you can still come to the table and talk to Russia and negotiate. You may not get anything out of it, but at least they'll, they'll let you come to the table. Iran, under no circumstances, is going to sit at the same table with the United States. And yet the progressives really think that instead of us becoming energy independent, we should just buy our oil from Eastern European and Middle Eastern authoritarian regimes. It is insane that they would be calling right now for us to just buy oil from Iran instead. Look at where the U.S. was prior to Joe Biden coming into office. We were at or near full energy independence ourselves. When he came into office, his administration started shutting down leases, nixed the Keystone XL pipeline. The Keystone XL pipeline could have been built several times over without the Democratic delays, and this wouldn't be as much of a problem right now. But the energy crisis in America is a national security issue. So here's our options. We can continue buying from Russia, and that Russia uses that money and rolls it into its war effort against Ukraine. So at the cost of Ukrainian lives, your gas prices can currently be here in Lafayette $3.87 per gallon versus $3.95 a gallon. Or we can stop buying from Russia, start buying from Iran, and they use that money to fund terrorist groups that will attack our allies and our interests in the Middle East. Or we can really start working to rebuild American energy independence. And I know what the progressives are going to say. Fossil fuels mean climate change. It's going to hurt the environment. It's going to hurt us. What about nuclear? Nuclear is the cleanest energy available. It is not dangerous. There has the, 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 the major nuclear problems in energy throughout history have been a result of negligence. You can fiercely regulate and still produce quality nuclear energy. In Florida, they are applying for a renewal of a nuclear power plant there, and the Biden administration is telling them no, out of environmental concerns, because what if there is another hurricane that comes through and destabilizes that plant? What well, hadn't happened yet. Do you know how many hurricanes the South has been battered by over the last 10 years? Nothing's happened to that plant so far. Nuclear energy is the absolute way to go if you want to reduce your general energy uh, prices for homes. If you want to provide more energy to American homes, nuclear is the way to go. And if we're not relying on fossil fuels for energy, that means fossil fuel prices in other parts of the economy will go down. That means gas prices, oil prices can go down. That means coal prices can go down because they're not being used in these power plants because you're converting to nuclear. And so you are actually reducing your carbon output that way. 
But the Biden administration came in and said, you know what, we're not going to increase our carbon uh, imprint, our carbon footprint with production here on, on our land. We'll just buy from elsewhere and we'll just consume that. That way we're still meeting up with our energy needs, but we're not producing it. We're not, we're not increasing our carbon footprint here, which is mind-blowingly dumb. Because look at where we are now. We're in a position where we're buying oil that funds an unjust war against Ukraine. Or our other option right now is to buy from a regime that will use that money to fund Hezbollah and other terrorist groups to attack our allies in Israel and attack our allies in the rest of the Middle East. The rest of the Middle East is fine with Israel right now. The Abraham Accords, the work that the Trump administration put in to bringing a certain amount of peace to the Middle East, every one of those nations agrees that Iran is the problem. But the Biden administration may actually consider, based on how loudly their base speaks out, how loudly their activists and politicians speak out, may actually consider buying oil from them. That money would be used to destabilize our allies. It's insane. It is mind-numbingly insane. The policies of this childish administration, they are ruling purely on ideological theory and no practicality whatsoever. And as a result, it is hurting Americans. The irony is he could cut off energy uh, imports from Russia and he could blame energy price increases on the Russians. Americans may not buy, but at least he has an excuse. 232-1542, when we come back from the break, uh, more going on in the news, including Ron DeSantis bullying children. We'll have that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk, 96.5 KPL. 232-1542, this is the Joe Cunningham Show. That's the number to call in if you want to be part of the conversation. A little bit of what I was mentioning in the last segment Saudi Arabia's de facto ruler said he sees Israel as a potential ally with shared interests, not an enemy, but that it must solve its conflict with the Palestinians first. Now, this may not surprise you listening just to that statement, but listen to uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's words. We hope that the problem between the Israelis and the Palestinians will be resolved, he said in an interview that has been attributed to Atlantic Magazine, but which weren't published in the magazine's article. We do not view Israel as an enemy, but rather as a potential ally in the many interests that we can pursue together, but some issues must be resolved before we can reach that. This is, as Bloomberg points out, a subtle shift in the official Saudi line, which has long held that Israel and Saudi Arabia could establish a relationship, but not a friendship. An alliance between the two countries, though, in the near future could be a real possibility considering Iran. Now, again, Iran is where progressives say we should be buying our oil instead of Russia. So that 6.6% of our oil imports that we get from Russia uh, could instead come from Iran. Well, we don't want to do that. You know, the U.S. back in the Obama era entered this Iran nuclear deal that the Saudis and the Israelis both criticized because it gave too much leniency to the Islamic State. And again, the progressives are not taking the threat of Iran seriously enough. 
they want to go back to that nuclear deal. Back at home, so on Mardi Gras, along with the State of the Union Address, what most people may not realize is that there were primaries in Texas all across the state for statewide and federal offices. Politico has a story out today. Headline, Hispanic women emerge as big winners in Texas GOP primary. Republicans have long argued that Donald Trump's gains in majority Hispanic South Texas were not a one-time deal and instead the beginning of a larger trend. The primary results on Tuesday night proved their right. The GOP saw continued strong turnout in the state's southernmost border counties in the latest display of Trump's gains among Hispanic voters that were no anomaly. But that was only one part of the story. When the dust clears after the May 24th runoffs, as many as eight Latinos, including six women, could ultimately be Republican nominees for congressional seats across Texas. In the Rio Grande Valley alone, at least two Latinas will carry the GOP nod. First of all, thank you to Politico for not jumping on the Latinx uh, train and, and, and talk about Latinx voters. They are actually talking about Hispanic and Latino voters. This is a continued demographic shift that the Democrats were not prepared for. They have long believed that immigrants, African-Americans, minority groups were their meal ticket to stay in power. But in places like Florida, Texas, Arizona, you're seeing in New Mexico, even you're seeing that Hispanic voters are actually shifting to the Republicans. Now, Part of this is the fact that the longer a Hispanic family stays in the United States, generation after generation, the more conservative, the more Republican aligned they become. However, Democrats trending to the same socialist policies that many of those families came to America to escape from one, two, three generations ago scares them to the Republican Party. The Democrats, in their vote the other day, voting for extreme access to abortion, extreme uh, limits, uh, extreme allowances for abortion, allowing abortion to be uh, possible up until the child fully exits the birth canal. Some of those social issues really do have an impact on deeply religious immigrant communities like Hispanic voters. So the Democrats have been essentially chasing away one of their preferred minority groups. And I don't think it's any, I don't think that there is any coincidence that in his State of the Union address, Biden, who has never once cared about the border, all of a sudden cares about the border. He said so in his speech last, uh, on Tuesday night. Biden says we need to secure our border. Why would he be saying that unless the pollsters have realized, hey, Hispanic voters in the United States, the ones who came here legally, are furious at all the people jumping the line. You need to do something about it. And the Biden administration is not doing anything about it. I mean, they put Kamala Harris on the case and she promptly had an awkward interview with Lester Holt and visited the border once and then was never seen again on the issue. 
Some borders are she turned out to be. So this is, this is part of the challenge for Democrats. I, so let's, let's go back to what I've been saying since I started the show back in January. The Democrats are poised to have a terrible 2022. All of the polling shows it. But when you start digging down into the demographic data in these polls, you start seeing that a lot of what the Democrats were banking on for years is no longer there. The Democrats are having problems hanging on to all but rich white progressives. The ones who will pay lip service to racial equality, but also don't want black parents to send their kids to their kids' private schools. They are the, they're the base. Rich, white progressives, mostly younger, are the base of the Democratic Party. And their beliefs, their, their policies, their preferred policies are chasing other groups out. You even saw a shift in the black male vote to Donald Trump in 2020. And that wasn't an anomaly either, because what happened during Trump's presidency? Historic low minority unemployment. Black men were getting jobs. And black moms, their children were getting jobs. Their children were entering the workforce. A successful workforce. These are things that the Democrats were never ready to take into account. And as a result, they are losing the democratic, they're losing the demographic battle. You know what? Let's go ahead and take an early break. 232-1542. When we come back, a couple more national stories. Let's talk about Ron DeSantis bullying kids when we come back here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Glad to have been with you guys today. Last segment of the day, so let's make it a good one. Uh, yesterday, video started circulating of Ron DeSantis. Uh, he was speaking at the University of South Florida. There were kids on stage behind him. Um, nobody in the crowd was wearing a mask. But the kids who got on stage with DeSantis were told before getting on the stage to wear their mask. Upon getting on stage with them, he turned around and told them to take it off. This is theater. It's foolish. Uh, he said, please take it off. If you want to wear it, you can, but this is ridiculous. Um, and the media is currently, with everything else going on, is excoriating DeSantis for bullying teenagers. That is what they are saying. They are accusing DeSantis, despite the fact that he said, please take it off and you can keep it on if you want to. They are actually saying that he was bullying these kids. That is what they are focusing on right now. It is, it is actually funny to see just how panicked they are about Ron DeSantis and his popularity, not just in Florida, but around the United States. It was Florida media leading this charge. Uh, there were some mainstream media outlets that picked up on it, but a lot of it was Florida media really pushing this out there. One uh, one reporter out of uh, from a Florida TV station uh, 
you know, said, oh, what about freedom of choice or whatever? Uh, you know, kind of mocking, trying, trying to score a dunk on DeSantis. And, and, you know, what about freedom of choice? Dude, he said, you can leave it on if you want. And he said, please, he didn't demand they take it off. But they are so blinded by their hatred of the next Trump that they are going after him for these ridiculous stories. Uh, my buddy Eric Erickson um, mentioned uh, on Twitter that this really is a litmus test. If you watch the video of DeSantis telling these kids, please take off your mask. If you want to wear them, you can, but please take them. But, but this is ridiculous. If you watched that video and decided he was bullying a kid, you're you're a Democrat. And if you are watching it, then you're if you're watching it and think that he was giving them the choice and thinking it's not that bad, you're it, it is a litmus test for your views on masks. And that's that solely reveals your partisan allegiance because the masking thing has become highly partisan. Progressives cannot give up. Masks. Uh, Kevin Williamson at National Review wrote about that uh, back in February. And it was a very good column. Uh, you can go and read it, uh, Why Progressives Can't Quit Their Masks. After the election, de- uh, the Democrats and Republicans settled back in their familiar respective groups. Republicans who had sympathized with the Trump administration's early efforts to play down COVID-19 went back to poo-pooing it. And Democrats return to their their peculiar form of technocratic pietism. Democrats sacralized vaccines. Republicans scorned them and all talked up quack cures. The mass became the burqa of the COVID era with the Subaru-mounted Mutaween of suburbia zealously guarding the new public morality. He's got an incredible vocabulary. Uh, but he goes on talking about the the inability of progressives to give up masking despite the fact that the data did not support it at all. And that's what that video of DeSantis kind of goes on to prove. Now, while the media is focusing on that, there is actually a story that is being circulated by the New York Times that nobody really seems to be picking up on. Nobody except Dan Rather. And it may shock you to know that Dan Rather is still struggling when it comes to facts. In fact, it's probably my favorite rivalry in sports is Dan Rather versus basic, literally any facts. A journalist who can talk about honesty and integrity is still nonetheless remembered for a blockbuster story uh, that turned out to be based on forgeries, a story he still stands by to this day. So the New York Times is reporting that the January 6th committee in a court filing in, Cal- uh, in a civil case in California, the committee's lawyers laid out their theory of a potential criminal case against the former president. They said they had accumulated evidence demonstrating that Mr. Trump, the conservative lawyer John Eastman, and other allies could potentially be charged with criminal violations, including ob- obstructing an official proceeding of Congress and conspiracy to defraud the American people. The filing also said there was evidence that Mr. Trump's repeated lies that the election had been stolen amounted to common law fraud. And of course, they filed this in California because they need a liberal court on their side. All of this said, Dan Rather takes to Twitter and posts, there's a scene in, a star, in Star Wars in a trash compactor. Reminds me, reminds me what happens to the walls. Well, what he's referring to is the fact that in this trash compactor that our heroes... Uh, 
Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia, and Chewbacca are this, this room they're in. The walls of this, tra- this trash compactor begin to close. However, that was the first Star Wars movie released. And if the walls truly closing in meant certain doom for the heroes, there would not have been a second, third, there would not have been six, you know, eight other movies that come out and tons of spinoff stories. The movie would have been done in less than an hour. But it wasn't. Because Dan Rather forgets the facts. The fact of the matter is the heroes escaped that trash compactor despite the walls closing in. Just as Trump has escaped prosecution time after time after time, despite, as the media and the Democrats have told us for five years now, the walls were closing in on Trump. At some point, you've got to assume that maybe the walls weren't closing in at all, and this was just the rhetoric of a group of people that were very, very sour about losing an election in 2016. Although that really couldn't be the case because they are so dedicated to upholding democracy and ensuring that people recognize that our election systems work. There's no way that they could be they could be sour and implying that an election was stolen from them rather than them legitimately losing to a guy like Donald Trump. Spoiler alert. The heroes of the movie escape the trash compactor. Spoiler alert. These charges against Trump are probably not, if they do get filed, are probably not going to go anywhere. A common law fraud for saying that the election had been stolen. I disagree with him that the election had been stolen, but I don't think it's you know, up to a criminal fraud level. That's nuts. But the Democrats have to keep the January 6th thing going. Because everything else they're trying is failing. Every time they just try to throw something against the wall to see what sticks. You know, ahead of the Virginia gubernatorial election, last year in 2021 the democrats had polling internal polling that showed american citizens wanted to see what would happen uh well they they wanted to see the january 6th thing through they wanted congress to get to the bottom of it their polling showed that the republicans polling by the way also showed that republican internal polling actually did show that americans wanted congress to finish investigating the January 6th thing. But the two parties drew different conclusions. The Republicans drew the conclusion that the people wanted the Congress to investigate it, get it over with, be done with it. They were tired of hearing about it, and they acted accordingly. The Republicans have acted accordingly, have dismissed January 6th, dismissed talking about it. That's one of the reasons that the Republican Party has been so adamant that something be done to Liz Cheney. At the same time, the Democrats said, well, this means that people care about it. They want answers. They want somebody to go to jail for it. And so they've been doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on it. And they keep bringing it up. They keep bringing it up. And never, not once, does it actually pan out for them. The Democrats are just throwing everything they can against the wall to see what sticks because their poll numbers are abysmal. Every issue they're losing on right now. And there's no solution for them. I have already told you my opinion on the January 6th committee and the potential charges. I get the feeling they're going to come up with nothing, and this has all been a show for voters who are growing increasingly disinterested in this. 
Each time the walls are supposedly closing in on Trump, he seems to escape. Even if you believe that Trump was not a great guy and deserves to be investigated and all this, at some point you have to recognize that all this stuff they're saying about Trump does not seem to be the case. It does not seem to be working. But the Democrats have nothing else. That's it for me today. We'll be back on a bright and sunny Friday here tomorrow, 23 hours. Tune in for the rest of the day. we got Offsides up next. This has been Joe Cunningham on The Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show, and be sure to catch the podcast version on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great evening, everybody.